Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Renewal in the church usually comes from renewed attention to St. Paul. When God wants to breathe new life into us, God reminds us to pay attention to the words of Paul. His words about the grace and majesty of Jesus Christ. Renewal is what I long for for us as a church. Not just for us, but through us, for others, for our neighborhood, and for our city. We Christians don't just teach from the Bible so we would know more facts, be more effective on trivia night. We preach from the Bible because we want to see God's world transformed but we often shy away from Paul in liberal and mainline churches. I mentioned several reasons for this in my sermon last week. Those who felt excluded from the church's life because they're female or they're gay or they're persons of color have often faced that with quotes from St. Paul. But here's another reason we don't often preach from Paul. It's because doctrines that derive from Paul are deeply out of fashion. For example... Our teaching about original sin. It comes from the passage that Janice just read. Once Adam and Eve disobey God, all the rest of us, every one of their children, are born in rebellion. No one can escape. It doesn't matter how good you are or how bad, how hard you're trying, or how hard you're not trying. We're all the same before God. Sinners. Now, I was preaching along this line in here recently, and one of you asked me afterwards, we're really not so bad as all that, are we? And of course, experientially, the answer is no. Most human beings, most of the time, are doing the best we can. But theologically, from our birth, we are in a broken relationship with God that we can't repair, that no one can repair from the human side. Now, this teaching is true the problem is we Christians have often fixated on sins, plural, not sin, capital S, especially little moralistic individual behaviors. And we give the impression that all we're doing is frowning while the world burns. I visited the town where I pastored for years recently, and there was a little meeting like this, and one of the older folks said, do you remember what you preached on your first sermon here? I said, I have no idea. Tell me. And he said, sin. And he looked happy about it. And I so wish he'd said, I preached about Jesus. <laughs> Paul says, one man's trespass led to condemnation for all. One single act of disobedience has ramifications for every subsequent generation, including 8 billion of us on the planet now. Sort of a bummer on an otherwise lovely Sunday morning. But let's look again. We may find that Paul is filled with so much more grace than we've been led to believe. This passage is where we get original sin, sure. But there is so much more here. In Romans 5, Paul is comparing Jesus to Adam. Adam is the founder of our disobedience, the one after whom all human beings are doomed 
and we can't help it. In the same way, Paul says, Jesus Christ is the bringer of overwhelming grace. After him, every human being is graced, whether we know it or not. Jesus is Adam done right this time. A second Adam, an altogether better Adam. Everything that went wrong with the first Adam goes right with the final Adam. Now, we Christians have often earned our reputation for being moralistic finger waggers. Don't do this, don't do that. Don't drink or cuss or chew or go with girls who do. Don't, don't, don't. As if Jesus came in the flesh and rose from the dead just so people would behave like we were kindergartners. I so wish we were known for being fixated on grace, on mercy, on Jesus instead. For standing in awe that when God's first Adam failed, God sent a second and altogether better Adam to make all things new. I wish when people talked about the church, they would say, do you know how crazy those people are? They will forgive anybody. There's an actor and director I admire named Britt Marling. She was in a series called The OA that she wrote, produced. You might have seen that, but you will not have seen her previous movie, Another Earth. Her character has wasted her life. She's driving drunk one night. She falls asleep. She hits another car head on, and she kills everyone in the other car. She walks away without a scratch. It's the worst thing that can happen. Nothing can ever make up for that. But then it turns into science fiction. Telescopes spot an object approaching Earth, and then the naked eye can see it, and it looks a lot like another Earth. Same color, same size, and then as it gets closer, there starts to be contact between the two Earths, and this character wonders, in that new world, am I not a monster? Maybe in that world, I'm not a murderer with blood on my hands that I can't clean off. And in the very last scene of the movie, she sees the other her, and then it's over. There are some sins that would take a whole nother world to have forgiven. In Jesus Christ, we're given a whole nother world. Humanity done right this time. That's what original sin teaches. It's actually a deeply cheerful doctrine. There is a new world marked by grace, not despair. So all of us are equally sinners. Yes, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No matter who we are, no matter how good we're trying to be or not, all of us. Now, why do we teach that? Is it because of Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve and the snake? No! Ask any of your Jewish friends or neighbors, and they will tell you that story is not about the fall. And sure enough, you can't find the word fall in Genesis 3. We Christians teach original sin because of this passage, Romans 5. It's a reflection of Jesus Christ and the way God saves. Original sin is just the shadow. Jesus Christ's mercy is the great light that makes the shadow. It says, wow. For God to come in person in Jesus and birth a new world among us, our sins must have been worse than we realized. 
You only realize you're a sinner after you've seen grace. Reinhold Niebuhr, great Christian ethicist, said original sin is our only objectively verifiable teaching. You can prove it. Any of you have more than one kid? How do they behave toward one another? I get the bigger cookie. You broke the vase, right? Each one of us is more selfish than the last. Now, we adults would never behave that way, would we? This is how that works. Every child, every person is beautiful, of course. And we're each more selfish than the last. God had work to do to save such people as us. And God has already done that work in Jesus Christ. Now, as soon as Paul compares Christ and Adam, he has to backtrack. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Christ is like Adam, but so much greater. Adam might be first in time, but Christ is first in importance, in impact, in the size of the crater that he's left. Wait a minute, Paul. You just said, after Adam, everyone is affected down to this day. Right. How is Christ's grace so much greater than that? Don't know, Paul says. He often says he doesn't know. He's trying to fathom a mystery no one can conceive. But he does know this. Christ has to be greater than Adam. Or else, Adam would be greater. Our Savior, the one we worship. And that can never be. Paul says this. In my manuscript, I say Paul says it four times in three verses. As Janice read, I counted him saying it nine times in ten verses. But the free gift is not like the trespass. If many died through one man's trespass, much more surely as the grace of God and the one Jesus Christ abounded. The gift is not like the effect of one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. The gift brings justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned much more surely. Are you hearing me? Much more surely. Will those who receive the abundance of grace, grace reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. As soon as Paul says, Christ is Adam done right this time, he stops himself. Wait a minute. Let's make clear. Christ is so much more than Adam ever was that we can't imagine the extent. So we have the analogy. Christ is the second Adam, the last Adam, Adam done right this time. Adam corrected, perfected. Adam made whole and whole-making of others. And then, wait a minute, Christ is so much more. So yeah, sin is bad. We talk about original sin because of this passage. No one escapes it. The world is dying because of it. And grace is so much bigger, so much greater. We can't even imagine how much. I met a retired pastor once, asked how his decades of ministry had gone, always looking for a tip or two. He said, not well. I only stayed a short time everywhere I went. Oh, why is that? In fact, I was thinking, your ministry sounds more like Jesus's than mine does. He said, they didn't like my preaching of universalism. Ah, interesting. In some parts of the church, we have to be sure someone's in hell. Lots of someones are in hell, and I probably know who they are. And so his churches. 
This haunted me for some reason, and I finally realized why. How about not preaching something called universalism? How about not preaching any sort of ism, but just preach Jesus and let people draw their own conclusions? If you do that from Paul, you start to wonder, gosh, Christ's grace is so much greater than Adam's predicament. Can anyone escape his grace? If Adam's fall taints us all, does Christ's grace heal us all? Because Paul insists Christ's work is so much greater and wider and more effective. Draw your own conclusions. But if you want to teach hell, you got to leave Paul. And you got to go to that guy right there. I can't find you hell in St. Paul, but I can find it in Jesus. Now this flips our stereotypes on their head. We assume Paul is the mean one and Jesus is the nice one. But again, if you're looking for the fiery place, look in the Gospels, not in Paul. The more you read Paul, the more you wonder, gosh, could anyone escape this grace? Here's why this is important. We live in a graceless age. We talk more about sin than ever in our culture, but we just don't use the word. In an age of eco-catastrophe, Burning fossil fuels is indefensible, and we all do it. That's how I got here this morning. How about you guys? In an age where we're reckoning anew over race, colonialism is the unforgivable sin, and being colonized makes you essentially good. And in our cultural discourse, there is no atoning for such sins. Who could ever atone for 500 years of mistreatment on a massive scale. And then there's a backlash, of course. Hey, I'm innocent. I didn't do any of those things. The gospel says something else. All are sinners. Everyone. And the gospel says, we're even guilty of stuff we didn't personally do. Adam's sin has followed us ever since. But grace is greater still. So much greater than we can imagine. And if there's anything that can heal our planet or heal our frayed social discourse, it's grace alone. I saw a documentary once on the descendants of the architects of Nazism, people with surnames like Goebbels and Himmler and Goering. They had mostly changed their names for obvious reasons, but several did more than that. Several sterilized themselves. They said, I cut the line. Now, that's a dangerous way to think about evil, that it's hiding in your DNA, because Christ can redeem absolutely anybody. But you can see their point. Paul's vision of grace here is almost genealogical, biological, and you can't cut it off. So think about all those fairy stories we have where someone poor discovers they're actually royalty. We have these in every culture. Wait a minute, you mean I'm a princess for real? <laughs> Not just pretending? And we say, yeah. Paul says, your family line is royal, Christly. He's your Adam, your kinsman, head of the family, especially if you've forgotten who you are. And we tend to think of salvation this way. Adam sins, and so we all do. Christ forgives. 
We receive that by faith and are saved. That's a major key in our symphony, but there are other keys. And this is one of them this morning. Christ as Adam done right this time. Now, this version doesn't make a heavy emphasis on our guilt. Paul doesn't mention you and me and whether we should believe or not in this passage. The emphasis is on a whole new humanity, being born right in the middle of the old. If Adam affects everyone, Christ affects everyone much, much more. Good luck staying out of his reach. One of the great poets in our language, John Donne, describes it this way. It's on page 11 in your bulletin underneath the icon. Now remember, one of the punishments for Adam's fall is we all work with sweat on our brow. So see this in your bulletin on page 11 or on your screen if you're online. We think that paradise and Calvary, Christ's cross and Adam's tree, stood in one place. Look, Lord, and find both Adam's met in me. As the first Adam's sweat surrounds my face, may the last Adam's blood my soul embrace. We belong to the first Adam by virtue of being human. And we belong to the second Adam by virtue of being human. Once God has become human, what human being cannot be affected by that? Now, one benefit of talking in Paul's way about original sin is that usually when we Christians talk about original sin, what do we do? We blame the woman. Sexism is born in the fall, and it happens with the first Adam. God says, Adam, what have you done? And Adam says, well, this woman that you gave me, she... Do you feel the blame shifting? It's not my fault, God. It's yours and hers and the snakes and everybody else. That's sin. When we say, hey, 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 I'm innocent. It was everyone else's fault. In fact, I'm aggrieved. It starts in Genesis. In Romans 5, it's pinned not on Eve, but on Adam. Gentlemen, we are the cause of the fall. I regret to inform you. Also on that same page, 11, there's an icon I've showed you before of Mary and Eve. As Christ is Adam done right this time, so the church has wondered, Mary must be Eve done right this time. And if you look at the image, Eve is miserable, still clutching the fruit. That's the cause of our fall. The snake still coiled around her leg. But Mary looks at her with nothing but tenderness and moves Eve's hand to her swelling belly to say, dear sister, without your sin, this grace would not have come. In the church, we call this teaching a happy fault, Felix culpa, that we receive so great a savior as Christ. J.R.R. Tolkien knew this too. He called it a you catastrophe, a good catastrophe. All the evil in the world leads to redemption being so much sweeter. Happy fault that makes so great a savior as Christ. Now, every multitasking mom will also notice this. What else is Mary doing? Barefoot, she's crushing the serpent's head. Snake, I got this. I don't even need to look at it while correcting the homework and making the lunch. This is what God says to us. Okay, humanity, crucify my son I'll give salvation to the whole world through that. 
What else you got? Whatever we send at God, God can jujitsu into grace for all. That's how good God is. On that icon, a nun in Iowa drew that while she was bored during a chapter meeting. And the sister beside her saw it and said, that's good. You should show that to the abbess. And they sent it round as their Christmas card that year. Careful what you doodle when you're bored. It can bear a lot of fruit. Now, as I ran all this by my Bible study on Tuesday, folks got nervous. All right, they said. Christ's grace reaches out to everyone. But does it catch everyone? Surely our behavior matters, doesn't it? I mean, don't we need to respond to grace with faith in order to be saved? I've had a few funerals around here recently. Now, here's a promise. When I preach your funeral, I praise you up and down. I make sure everyone knows how loved you are, how much you loved, how much you accomplished. I basically fling you all the way into heaven. There may be moments to mention your faults. That is not one of them. I promise you. And I promise you another thing. Here's what I will say. At the end of the day, their character is not what matters. At the end of the day, what matters is the character of God and God's mercy in Jesus Christ. So that's what we'll say. Now, one of the family members this week listened well enough to have a good question. All right, you're saying my character doesn't matter when I'm at the graveyard. Correct. Well, why should I behave then? Like, does what I do have any meaning? Now, that is an excellent question. Well, let me respond with a story. The story comes from Karl Barth, great Swiss theologian. It's a folk tale from Switzerland where he grew up, and it's about a man in a cabin late at night. There's a knock on the door, and there's a rider who needs shelter. And the man asks, where'd you come from? And the rider says, from across that clearing over there. And the man looks grave and says, that's no clearing. That's a partially frozen lake. You should be dead, drowned and frozen at the bottom. And the rider says, wow, I, I had no idea what danger I was in. I should be dead, but I'm alive. Now every moment I get is gravy. All I can bear to do from now on is be grateful for a life I shouldn't have. That's actually how salvation works. We human beings tend to think that we build up some sort of spiritual resume and pre present it to God and then we get a gold star because that's how most of life works. It's exactly backwards. God graces us with Jesus Christ when we are not looking, grants us favor we're not even asking for. And then we say, wow, I had no idea what sort of danger I was in. I'm going to spend the rest of my life in nothing but gratitude. And that's why we behave. Not to earn favor with God, but out of thank you for what God has already done. Another illustration from another preacher about an ordination interview. Candidate is asked, look out that window. You see that total stranger? Describe that person theologically. Now, some people would say, well, that's a sinner in desperate need of salvation. Others would say, that's a creature God loves enough to take flesh and save with God's incarnation. 
Both claims are true. But the observer would say the people who answer the second way tend to make the better ministers. We would expand it to say they tend to make the better Christians, the better people. After God has a face and a fleshy beating heart and skin, everyone who has those things is a reflection of God. Sermons often close with a pitch for faith. In some traditions, like my Methodist one, there's an altar call and folks are invited forward to profess faith in Jesus and be saved. There's health in that tradition. Timothy Eaton himself responded to such an altar call under a tent in small town Ontario. So if you want a business empire that'll bless the whole world, I suggest you meet Jesus. I'm just kidding, sort of. It's actually not a bad way to go. I responded to a pitch for faith as a teenager at a camp in rural North Carolina. The people that Pastor Lori mentioned a minute ago, Martin Luther, Mother Teresa, had a similar sort of meeting. I'm not inviting you to that today because that's not what Paul says in this passage. Paul sometimes says, believe, be saved, be changed. Here he says, a whole new humanity is born and you benefit whether you're aware of it or not. Amen.